Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your girl, Holly, and I am back with another Missing Monday case for you. Missing Mondays is a segment that was created to help keep missing persons' name and information in the media the best we can and to hopefully help aid in their return home. 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. at any given time, and while some are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. Our mission with Missing Mondays is not only to raise awareness on these cases, but also to let families know that their loved one is not forgotten. When the hype of these missing persons cases dies down and people go back to their regular daily lives, there is still a family and friends out there waiting for answers on what happened to their missing loved one. I never want a family of a missing individual to feel like people stopped caring. Because for us at Crimeaholics and our listeners, we will forever care and we will forever continue to share their loved one's names and stories. That is why we do what we do. Often with these cases, it is also presumed that the missing individual is deceased. I was recently asked on TikTok why I share a missing person if it's known that they are likely deceased, and I found that question kind of odd. Why wouldn't you continue to search? There is someone out there that knows something. This person deserves to be properly laid to rest. Today's Missing Monday case is one that authorities believe that she is no longer alive, and it's just a matter of finding her body. Her family, however, holds on to hope, so I will too. This case was one that was suggested last week when I did my Instagram question of which case you constantly think about. Once I shared her missing flyer on our story, her friends and family rushed to Instagram to flood me with more requests to cover her case. I was completely moved by the amount of people who came to Instagram to suggest her case, and I want to thank each and every one of you who rallied behind her. I guarantee her family appreciates you all remembering her name and her story. So without further ado, today's Missing Monday's case is on the disappearance of Alexis Gabe. Alexis Gabe was born on March 17, 1998, to her parents Rowena and Gwen Gabe. Alexis was one of three children and had an older brother named Gwen Marcus and a younger brother named Gwen Austin. Alexis grew up in the Bay Area of California. Her family lived in Oakley, California, which is a smaller but not super small city within the Contra Costa County. In the 2020 U.S. Census, Oakley, California was home to just over 43,000 people. So again, not a huge city in comparison to others within California, but still big enough to those who are within those itty-bitty cities throughout the country. Alexis is often described as sweet, kind, funny, loving, confident, and a caring person. She was an incredible friend and has so many people who loves and cares about her, and that was so apparent when you guys floated our Instagram requesting to cover her case. Alexis was known to love photography, fashion, and was an extremely talented artist. In the description of this episode, I will have a link to her art website, but you can also find it by going to alexisgabe.cravato.com. Alexis was extremely smart, too. Prior to her disappearance, she had just graduated from nursing school and had an incredibly bright future. In 2018, Alexis began dating a man by the name of Marshall Curtis Jones, who was from Antioch, California, which is just about 10 minutes west of Oakley. 
Everyone in Alexis's family really liked Marshall, and he just fit into their close-knit family. The couple dated for three years before they broke things off in November of 2021, but they continued to see each other off and on up until she went missing. On January 26, 2022, Alexis stopped in at a Chevron gas station on Lone Tree Way in Antioch to fill up her car. She is seen pumping gas into her light blue Infiniti sedan at 6.23 p.m. Then she went inside the gas station convenience store and can be seen on surveillance footage checking out at 6.25 p.m. At 6.29 p.m., Alexis is seen leaving the Chevron and heads to her ex-boyfriend Marshall's house. And all of this is documented through various different surveillance cameras that she passes along the way. I also want to add that this timeline was broken down beautifully by Cron4.com, which will be linked in the episode sources, so if you want to view those timestamps laid out, you can. After just a few short minutes drive, Alexis arrives at Marshall's home on Bent Tree Way in Antioch at 6.37 p.m. and she turns off her infinity. Now, according to Marshall, Alexis stayed at his house until sometime around 9 p.m. before heading home for the night. But Alexis never returned home to the apartment that she shared with her parents in Oakley and Gwen and Rowena knew something wasn't right. When she didn't come home the following morning, they reached out to Marshall to ask him if she was still with him at 8.15 a.m., but he had told them that she had left the night before at 9 p.m. With hearing that Alexis had left Marshall's house and not a word from her, the Gabes at this point knew that something had to have happened. Even though Alexis was an adult, she was extremely close to her parents. They knew that she wouldn't just not come home without communicating with them where she was going or what she was doing. So to Gwen and Rowena, they thought that maybe Alexis had gotten into some sort of accident or maybe something had happened along the way home after leaving Marshall's. So they called and reported Alexis missing almost immediately. The Gabe family rallied together a group of people to begin searching for Alexis. And according to ABC 30, it was during this search that Alexis's two nieces found her light blue infinity completely abandoned around 4.15 p.m. on January 27th. On the afternoon of January 27th, Alexis's car was found abandoned on a residential street not far from where she lived with her parents in Oakley, which again, Oakley and Antioch, where she was last known to have been, aren't far from each other at all. The doors to her infinity were unlocked and her keys were still in the ignition. Alexis's older brother tells ABC7, quote, As soon as my parents got there, my dad was like, open the trunk. So I unlocked the trunk and opened it up and nothing was in there, end quote. In that moment, I am sure they felt so much relief to find nothing in the trunk. But at the same time, I'm sure they felt so much confusion as well. Why would Alexis just leave her car on this residential street with the keys still in the ignition? If she had car troubles, she would have for sure locked the car up and taken the keys with her. So once more, this was extremely troubling for the Gabe family. Also noticeably gone from the car was her cell phone, so her family tried to ping the location of her phone and it showed that the cell phone was either turned off or had died. 
without being able to ping Alexis's phone and no real idea of what to do next, her family and friends did whatever they could to gain attention to her case. They started a Facebook group, Instagram page, reached out to the media, and did countless searches. They held vigils as well as hung missing persons posters anywhere that they could. While her family was working on bringing awareness and conducting their own ground searches, the police were working hard to begin their investigation conducting interviews with family, friends, and Marshall Jones, who had last seen Alexis. They learned from her brother, Gwen Marcus, that the day of January 26 was nothing out of the ordinary for Alexis and that everything seemed fine. Everyone who knew and loved Alexis was eager to do whatever they could to help search for her, including her brother's girlfriend and even complete strangers. Yet it was very apparent the absence of one particular person, Marshall Jones. Which, if you ask me, that is a huge red flag. This is someone that Marshall had not only dated for three years, but this was someone he had been with literally just before she had gone missing. You'd think that with how well he knew the family and how well-liked he was, that he would have been right there with them in the thick of it. And again, it's not like their breakup was this horrible, awful thing. They were still seeing each other off and on. So why wouldn't you want to help search for someone you care or even once cared about? And I think everyone can agree here that the fact that he did not help and was the last person she was with before she had gone missing looks really suspicious. And to top it all off, Marshall was pretty hesitant to speak with police, but he did a few times, and he also allegedly didn't want them to search his home in Antioch. But on February 1st, 2022, the police arrived on the doorstep of his home on Bent Tree Way with a search warrant in hand. According to the Daily Beast, investigators collected several large bags of evidence and also seized a vacuum cleaner. Cron 4 reported that it was during this search warrant that officers found small traces of blood, and they also noticed that the shower curtains in the bathroom were missing. It was also around this time that police were able to obtain surveillance footage from the area where Alexis's car was found abandoned, and to their surprise, they had a suspect on camera walking away from the area of where the car was found on the night that she went missing. They were able to determine that the individual in the video was somewhere between 5 foot 11 and 6 foot tall, and that he had a slim build and he had dark skin. KTVU reported that he was also wearing a large jacket, a beanie or cap, and his face was covered with an N95 style face mask with a beard protruding from underneath. This video of the person of interest was not released to the public until April 28th, so three months after Alexis went missing. However, when authorities got this footage, it was very apparent to them, and it will be apparent to you guys as well when you see the surveillance footage and the pictures of Marshall Jones, that it really does look like Alexis's ex-boyfriend Marshall. After some time in the investigation, authorities were finally able to gain access to the cell phone data as well as the data from Alexis's car. So once more, I'm going to reflect back on that amazing timeline that was put together by Cron 4. As I mentioned earlier, when Alexis arrived at Marshall's home at 6.37pm, she turned off her Infinity sedan. 
At this point, her phone continued to be on and active within the area of Marshall's home. Cell phone data obtained by the police was able to see that at 9.10 p.m., Marshall's iPhone began a one-hour and 59-minute phone call to his father. At 9.20 p.m., Marshall's cell phone logged the last lift to wake, which this was something I had never heard of, and it was actually really cool to learn about. Apparently, iPhones log every single time the phone lights up from sensing motion. So as I'm sure you all with iPhones know, when you pick up your phone, it will light up. Every single time that happens, the phone logs this into its database. So they were able to determine that Marshall was not actually holding his phone or even using his phone during the large majority of this phone call, which as I'm sure you are also aware, sometimes when you're on the phone holding the phone up to your ear and moving around, the screen will still light up. So had he been holding the phone during this conversation, that was bound to have happened at some point or another. Now, one thing that comes to mind when thinking of a phone not lighting up during this long phone call was that maybe he had headphones in his ears and that he had placed his phone somewhere sitting down. But I would assume that was something the phone could have logged as well, and none of that was mentioned anywhere, so I'm going to assume that that likely was not the scenario here. At 9.23 p.m., Alexis's Infinity turned on and began moving. Her cell phone also moved along with the Infinity's GPS. The Infinity was seen passing several surveillance cameras. The Infinity made several turns down streets before it turned on Trenton Lane, where it was parked, which again, this is the street the car would later be found abandoned on. Now, here's where things get interesting. Historical data from the Infinity's GPS show that Alexis always drove a specific route to Antioch and then a specific way back to her house. This was the same exact route she drove every single time with no deviations from that route until this trip when the Infinity left Marshall's house and parked on Trenton Lane. At 9.35 p.m., the Infinity turned off and seconds later, the driver exited the vehicle and began walking northbound on Norley Road. No other person exited the vehicle. Now, Alexis's cell phone records showed that the phone moved with the person who exited the car. So whomever was driving the car at this point and then got out of it had her phone with them. The driver who is now walking on foot passes surveillance cameras on Oakley Road and Belden Lane at 9.39 p.m. At 9.43 p.m., Alexis's phone stopped transmitting data and was presumably turned off, but her phone records show that her phone traveled along the same path as the driver up until that moment that it was turned off. At 10.06 p.m., surveillance video on Live Oak Avenue has the driver walking south. At 10.37 p.m., the driver is captured on surveillance video at Slatton Ranch Shopping Center, and he is seen walking along a footpath behind the shopping center. He was captured again at 10.43 p.m. on video from a chase bank where he was walking across Lone Tree Way. At 11.03 p.m., video from Vista Grand Drive shows the driver still walking. 
Marshall's phone call with his dad ended at 11.09 p.m. and his phone began logging use and movement again. So between 9.20 p.m. and 11.09 p.m., Marshall's phone didn't move at all, which had authorities believing that he had left his phone at home when he abandoned Alexis's card and then walked back home. And this leaves you wondering why the phone call to his dad. Had Marshall told his dad what had happened and asked for advice? Did he make this phone call to give himself some sort of an alibi to prove that he couldn't have done something because he was on the phone with his father? There is so many questions as to why this phone call was made and what was discussed. But either way, authorities do believe that Marshall was in fact the person who left Alexis's car on Trenton Lane and that he left his phone at home during that time he was gone. And not to mention, all of those streets and areas I mentioned that the driver was walking on is all the route that one could have taken to get back to Marshall's home on Cedar Point Way in Antioch. At 11.16 p.m., Marshall sent a text message to Alexis asking if she made it home. Then at 11.36 p.m., he called Alexis's phone and no one answered. On January 27th, after the missing persons report was filed by Alexis's family and her infinity was found, the Oakley Police Department made their first contact with Marshall Jones at 5.07 p.m. He also told them that Alexis had left his home the previous night, sometime around 9 p.m., and that she had likely went over to a friend's house. Police discovered that the friend was out of town and that Alexis would have known that this friend was gone and not at home during this time. Cron 4 continues with their timeline on January 28th, stating that Marshall arrived at his mother's house at 1.21 p.m. and backed his vehicle into the driveway. He then unloaded several large, heavy garbage bags into the backyard or garage. Four hours later, Marshall went back to his mom's house while she was hosting a karaoke party and loaded those large garbage bags back into his Ford Explorer. He then went over to his sister's house in Vacaville and arrived there at 6.41 p.m. He left his sister's house at 7.11 p.m. and at this point, he turned off his two phones. The reasoning for him having two phones was that one of them was seized for a brief time by the police department then was given back. But while they had it in their possession, Marshall and his mother, Alicia Coleman-Clark, went to purchase him a new phone at a Metro PCS store on that day of January 28th. So Marshall leaves his sister's home and turns off his two phones. His phones remain off until 12.43 a.m. on January 29th. When he powered his phone back on, he was in the area of Highway 160 and Highway 12. He was traveling back to Antioch and arrived at his mother's house at 1 a.m. At 2.41 a.m., Marshall arrived back to his sister's house in Vacaville. The following day on January 30th, Marshall Jones called out of work sick and left a voicemail for his boss stating that he had something he needed to take care of. On January 31st, Marshall's sister kicked him out of her home. February 1st, as I mentioned earlier, is when the search warrant was conducted on Marshall's home, where small traces of blood was found, the shower curtains were missing, and the vacuum cleaner was seized, among other evidence. The next day after this search warrant was conducted, Marshall left California and flew to Washington to stay at his father's house. 
Sometime after Marshall's sister kicked him out of her home, she found handwritten directions to a remote area in Pioneer, and this was written in her brother's handwriting, and he had thrown it in the trash. On February 23rd, 2022, police were at Marshall's sister's house conducting a search warrant when she handed over those handwritten directions and authorities immediately rushed to Pioneer to begin searching for Alexis. Multiple land, air, and water searches were conducted. They had search and rescue teams, divers, and FBI agents on scene with sonar specialists. They also had brought out cadaver dogs to attempt to pick up a scent. Unfortunately, despite all of their efforts, they found nothing. On February 25th, a break in the case would come when a volunteer from the Class Kids Foundation made a discovery. The Class Kids Foundation is a nonprofit that was established in 1994 in remembrance of kidnapping and murder victim Polly Class, who was just 12 years old at the time of her death. The purpose of Class Kids is to help conduct search and rescue efforts for missing children. They also offer a lot of other incredible things and resources, and I will have the link to the Class Kids Foundation linked in the description of this episode. But while searchers from the Class Kids were helping search for Alexis Gabe, two searchers located a shattered glass screen protector, which ultimately would be identified as belonging to Alexis. This screen protector was located in Oakley in some bushes on Live Oak Avenue, which if that road sounds familiar, that's because that was one of the roads I had mentioned earlier that the suspect was seen traveling down after abandoning Alexis's car. Though they found the screen protector, they were not able to find Alexis's cell phone. But what is absolutely crazy to me is the fact that they were able to link this screen protector to Alexis, and they did so through DNA testing. Also, while testing the screen protector, they were able to find that Marshall's DNA was also on the screen protector that was recovered. According to USA.Inquirer, the Antioch Police Department released that they had tapped Marshall's cell phone in April, and on top of the surveillance footage of the person they believed was Marshall walking away from Alexis's car, they also said they had plenty of other DNA and digital evidence, including phone calls, photos, and surveillance footage linking Marshall to her homicide. Now, during all of this time investigating, it was said that Marshall had gone to Washington and then back to California a few times. And it was also said that Marshall was refusing to continue to cooperate further with authorities, which ultimately hinders the investigation and doesn't look well for him. At the end of May, authorities were able to track down where Marshall was. And at this point, he had moved out of California and was staying with a friend in Kent, Washington. The East Bay Police Department requested the help of a Pacific Northwest team to help serve an arrest warrant for Marshall Jones. The team was made up of the Seattle Police Department, Snohomish County Sheriff's Office, and the United States Marshal Service. On June 1, 2022, the team arrived at the apartment complex where Marshall was staying with his friend. Authorities knew that Marshall was a legal registered gun owner who did not have a criminal record at all. But despite him not having a record, they came prepared just in case Marshall resisted arrest. This team was equipped with helmets, shields, and they also had a canine unit on scene. At 5.45 p.m., they banged on the apartment door announcing their arrival and that Marshall Jones was under arrest. 
After several knocks and yelling for him to come out, 27-year-old Marshall Jones opens the door in a white t-shirt holding a kitchen knife and he lunges for the officers. Marshall was shot instantly and died right there on the scene. I have so many mixed emotions about this moment. First and foremost, my heart absolutely aches for the Gabe family because the person who could ultimately end their misery of wondering what happened to their daughter, the person that holds the true answers is now dead. He could have just given them the answers they deserve, yet he essentially chose suicide by cop. And that is all that I can think that he was doing. It seems like he knew that he was caught, and instead of facing what he did, he lunged at the cops with a kitchen knife so that they would shoot him. Law enforcement and Alexis's family were completely disappointed at this turn of events, and rightfully so. In a press conference after the incident, Alexis's father, Gwen, said, quote, They were together for three years. He got along with the two brothers and his cousins. He became a part of our family. We had no idea he was capable of doing something like this to her. We didn't want him dead. We wanted him arrested to pay for his sentence. We wanted to meet him face to face. We wanted to look him in the eye and ask him why. Ask him where is Alexis, end quote. During the same press conference, Chief Beard stated, quote, We do understand the death of Marshall Jones is not what we had hoped for, but we do hope that somebody who has knowledge of Alexis's whereabouts will now feel more empowered to come forward without having to feel a negative response from Marshall Jones, end quote. CBS News also quoted Chief Beard stating, quote, Marshall Jones is our only suspect in the homicide of Alexis Gabe. However, I do believe he had help along the way. I need the public's help. I need the public to get motivated to bring forth information that will tell us where we need to search. And again, I'm hoping our $100,000 reward will motivate the public to bring that information to us, end quote. I do want to mention here that though authorities fully believe that Alexis was a victim of homicide and that it's just a matter of finding her body, nothing official has ever been released stating one way or another, and Alexis's family is holding on to hope that she is out there alive somewhere. After the news of Marshall's death spread, a friend of his came forward with some information. According to the friend, he and Marshall had talked a few weeks before Alexis had gone missing, and Marshall had asked him what he thought the best way to dispose of a body would be. The friend said that at this point, Marshall was talking about killing Alexis and that during their conversation, the two decided that the best way to dispose of a body would be to either dispose of it in a septic tank or to bury it in the woods. This friend didn't think anything of this conversation because he had assumed that Marshall was just joking. But in my opinion, that's just a random and slightly morbid conversation just to have randomly. And the fact that he allegedly specifically named Alexis as being the person he wanted to kill, and then the friend didn't come forward until he was dead even though she had been missing for a while, is troubling even more. Among authorities that searched the Pioneer area where those directions that Marshall had written were to, many volunteers have searched over 200 acres of land for any sign of Alexis or her body. They even drained more than 8 million gallons of water in a nearby pond. ABC7 spoke with Gwen Gabe and he stated that authorities are only focusing on Pioneer and that they strongly believe that she is there. 
When asked if he believed if Alexis was there, he stated, quote, not 100%. I don't think Alexis is there. My wife strongly believes she's still out there, that she is still alive, end quote. The Gabes believe that Alexis is closer and is somewhere in the Bay Area. Gwen was quoted saying, until we find a body, we are going to keep believing she is alive. Alexis's phone case was also found during various searches, but they have still yet to locate her actual cell phone. Family and friends of Alexis believe that Marshall's mother knows more than she is saying, and after the death of Marshall, his mother finally made contact with the Gabes. During this emotional conversation, Rowena asked her if she knew where her daughter was, which Marshall's mother, Alicia, replied, quote, I don't know. On August 12th, friends and family gathered outside of the Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office to try to pressure the DA to charge Alicia Coleman-Clark. It is believed that she knows what happened to Alexis and that she continues to withhold information. According to NBC Bay Area, detectives were not able to get an admission by Ms. Clark in an interview they had done. Without admission, no case could be filed. And if evidence becomes available proving that she knew that her son Marshall killed Alexis and that she assisted him after the fact, the DA's office will review the evidence for possible criminal prosecution. On September 9th, the Gabe family was able to pick up Alexis's car from police custody and her mother Rowena Gabe was able to drive the car home. ABC7 quoted Rowena saying, quote, it hurts because instead of her we are bringing home, it is just a car, end quote. Alexis's car was taken by the FBI as part of the investigation, and her family was told that it could be years before they ever got it back, if at all. In the Facebook group created for Alexis, Gwen Gabe shared a video of the moment they got her car back. As you can imagine, this was an extremely emotional moment for the Gabe family. I'm sure it was mixed emotions, happy to have a piece of her back, yet so heartbreaking and sad that it's this small piece and not actually Alexis herself being welcomed home. I highly encourage everyone to go join the Help Bring Alexis Gabe Home Facebook page because in there they share updates, they share dates that they plan on going to search, and much more. They also have shirts, bracelets, and many other things available for purchase to help raise funds and awareness for the family. I also want to add that in that group, her father Gwen shared several days ago that inside Alexis's car, there was no traces of blood, but they did find two bullet shell casings, one on the dashboard and one on the floor. There's lots of questions as to why they were in the car, and they have a discussion on what people think. I also want to encourage everyone to follow the Bring Alexis G Home Instagram page. Both of these links will be provided in the description of this episode, so it's easy for you to find. I also want to remind everyone that there is a $100,000 reward for anyone who finds or provides information leading to the recovery of Alexis Gabe's remains. At the time of her disappearance on January 26, 2022, Alexis Gabe was 23 years old. She has now since turned 24. She was last known to have been in the area of Bent Tree Way in Antioch, California, with her ex-boyfriend. She was last seen wearing a white tank top, black jeans, a black hoodie, and green and white sneakers. Alexis is 5'7 and weighs 170 pounds with dark brown hair and brown eyes. Alexis wears glasses and has a health condition that requires medication. 
If you or anyone you know has information on the disappearance of Alexis Gabe, you can contact the Oakley Police Department at 925-625-8060. Additionally, if you have information to share about Marshall Jones or if you may have seen him between January 27th to January 30th around Vacaville or Pioneer, California, you can call the Oakley Police Department. If you have information or tips, you can also contact a tip line that was created for Alexis's case at 925-625-7009, or you can email alexistips at ci.oakley.ca.us. I want to wrap up this episode by saying thank you to the many people who flooded me with a request to cover this case. I am sure that Alexis's family is so thankful for all of the community support that they have received and continue to receive. My heart goes out to Alexis's family, and I hope that someday within the near future, they are able to get the answers that they deserve. Crimeaholics, if you are not already a part of our private Facebook group, you can find us by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. Be sure to also follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you're wanting more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok as well at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally on Instagram, you can find me at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's Missing Monday. I will be back Friday with another murder case to share with you all. Until then, be aware and take care. 